0: Are you a Catholic woman who loves your faith, but finds certain aspects of living it out challenging and confusing? Are you a Catholic wife striving for a healthy, holy marriage and sex life, but don't know where to turn for straightforward, faithful, nitty-gritty answers to some of your deep and delicate questions? Are you a Catholic mom who's tired of the compare and despair game we all fall victim to on social media, and are just in need of some solidarity as you discover your own unique motherhood? Are you tired of the sunshine and rainbows pitch? Want to lean into the both and of the mess that happens when the truths of our faith get lived in a fallen world? Well, if that's where you find yourself, you're in the right place. Hi, I'm Emily Frazee, your host of the Total Wine Podcast. I'm here to dig deep and tackle topics that we are all curious about, but maybe too afraid to ask. I'll answer it all with honesty and humor because living the faithful life can make you either laugh or cry, and, well, laughing burns more calories. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Total Wine Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Frazee. It is Sunday of NFP Week of 2023. And last week, you know, it just, it, it hasn't even really dinged me like it has in years past that it's NFP Week. I remember when I first started blogging and first started writing, um, like weeks, months in advance, I was like planning these very elaborate, collaborative NFP series, um, and it was super cool and super fun. And if you are familiar with my blog, um, totalwine.com, total wine, wine with an H, um, go on my blog and go look up life abundantly and Uncharted Territory. Those are the two NFP Week series, collaborative blog series that I've done in years past. They were super fun. The first one that I did was awesome. Like I was shortly after I quit working to stay home with my daughter and it was a way for me to like have contact with other adults and actually to use a lot of the skills that I had been using in my previous job um which was very much about coordinating a lot of different people's schedules and and um it was super fun it was super fun and i think the the final product is something that i to this day i'm very proud of um but <laughs> this year <laughs> I tell you, I was thinking like in the last couple of weeks, I was like, oh yeah, it's NFP week. Like I'm seeing things, other people advertising that it's NFP week and it's just not dawning. And then last week, somebody tagged me in a story about like, yeah, let's share our stories for NFP week. And I was like, I texted some other friends of mine who are colleagues in this space. And I was like, do y'all even care that it's NFP week? And all of us were like, no. <laughs> I this used to be like my Super Bowl week and now I'm just like I talk about this all year round I don't need to go you know guns blazing for a week also I don't have the time I don't have the energy I have the time and the energy to sit down right now on this Sunday while my kids are all out in the backyard playing while my husband watches them to share my story my NFP story, um, which I've shared it in multiple places in multiple ways. Um, This is, this will actually be kind of fun slash interesting to record it in audio form. Uh, So hopefully this all, this all works out. Um, (laughs) A friend of mine asked me recently, she's probably listening, hi. um, She asked me if, how long it takes me to plan my episodes. I'm literally downstairs feeding my son, my baby. um, And I have, I was like, oh, it would actually be a really good idea for me to record a podcast for NFP week. And so I like brought my baby outside and I asked my husband, I was like, hey, you cool if I slip upstairs and record a podcast? And he's like, do what you gotta do. So here I am. That's how much planning goes into my recording these podcasts, (laughs) I mean, this is stuff that I have thought about, read about, talked about, talked with other people about for five years. It's like it's five years worth of planning that goes into most of my episodes anyway, including actually this one would probably be more like eight years because it's my story, and that started before I was married um Now, when I share my story and and this is the reason why I share my story is because it multiple reasons. Number one, it's the reason why I do everything I do. Like, this stuff happened to me, and I was like, oh, hell no. This ends with me. And I was just like, what What can I do to make sure that this stupidity stops? And I had all kinds of ideas, and all of them were dumb. And then I was like, I'll just start talking. So that's, that's basically how everything that I do now, Total Wine, my Instagram page, my podcast... Uh, my nonprofit organization, fan base, um, everything that I do, it's all because of my story. Um, All the work that I, you know, all the things that I talk about, all of the resources that I create, my coaching practice, everything is about, I, I want to be the person that I wish I had. I want to provide the resources that I wish I had when I was in this super sucky place and nobody was there for me. And 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 not because, I don't necessarily think it was because nobody was literally there for me. It was like, I didn't know it was okay to ask for help. Because I thought I was the only one having the problem. And then once I started talking, it was like, oh, no. But the other reason why I tell my story is not for it to be like this compare and despair thing. You know, like I know we kind of have this urge sometimes where we're just like, okay, whose story's the crappiest? Whose story's the worst? Like, oh, you went through X, Y, and Z. Oh, wait till you hear what I went through. It's not out of that spirit. It's actually the opposite. It's, I know that some of you listening have stories that are way worse than mine. That you are maybe like in the, this is going to be a podcast where I cuss. You are in the shit right now. This is not like a who's poop stinks worse contest. This is simply me saying that if you are in the mess and the muck and the ick right now, I will try to keep the cursing to a minimum. You're not alone. That's really, like, the primary reason why I tell my story is not, like, to, oh, my gosh, look at everything that I've gone through and all of the good stuff that's come out of it. It's, like, basically, like, you boil it down. I just want you to know you're not alone. Because that loneliness, that is what kills. It's not the suffering itself. It's not the abstinence. It's not the surprise babies. It's not, you know, the infertility. It's I am the only one doing this. Nobody else understands what I'm going through. It's the isolation, it's the feeling of abandonment. That's what kills. And so, the reason why I open up about my story is because I just want you to know you're not crazy. You're not a horrible Catholic. I know we, as Catholics, for some reason, you know, we heard that phrase, suffer joyfully, and we were like, Oh, so that means that if I'm dying inside, I need to put a smile on my face. Why, why did we go for the creepiest option? Why did we go for the creepiest option? I don't, I don't get it. If we're dying inside, that doesn't mean that we need to put a smile on our face. It just means that there is still hope. Now, what that hope looks like and clinging to that hope is hard. It's hard. It's work. It's purgative because it is so easy to become a cynic. Ask me how I know. (laughs) I am like the queen of cynicism, okay? That's something I'm working on. I'm very, very aware of, of the cynicism and I'm fighting against it, but it's hard. It's hard because when we do suffer, when we do experience deep pain and then we experience isolation on top of that, What we want to do and what we tend to do to protect ourselves is we build these impenetrable walls. Well, I'm just not going to have any hope. So no pain can come in. I won't hope for anything. No pain can get through. And that works. But the problem is, is that those impenetrable walls are impenetrable for everything. Not just pain, but also joy. We don't get to pick and choose. When we build impenetrable walls, everything is kept out, not just the bad stuff. And so ultimately, what I hope my story is also about is that it is about that hope that like, suffering is a part of life and that to reject suffering and to say that we shouldn't suffer is to say we shouldn't live. To say that we should not have hope, to say that we should build impenetrable walls is to say, I shouldn't be alive. What is there to live for? And that's not what we're called to. And that's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message of take up your cross and follow me. It's not take up your cross and just die, die, die. It's like, why are we dying? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it has no life. Death is not the final thing. It's not about dying. It's about dying being the means to living life abundantly. And that is the hope. Now, when we will live that life abundantly, (laughs) that's, that's that space where we can get real cynical. Trust me. I get it. But anyway, that's why I share my story. Um, and and the other thing is, I, I hope that there are some people out there who are working in the church, particularly in diocesan offices in marriage and family life um, director positions who may by happenstance come across my podcast. And it causes me no sense of, you know, fear that like you come across my podcast and you see something it's like oh she talks about vibrators and then she talks about this stuff oh gosh we can't touch her with a 10-foot pole um i get that nobody these are these are topics that people don't want to touch they're difficult topics they're messy they're very easy for people to make assumptions and make judgments and just throw the baby out with the bathwater. but i do hope that if you are you know, a director of marriage and family life out there in some diocese, I, I hope you listen. Because I have shared my story with some, with with directors before, and I have been like told to my face that we can't be honest with people because they'll just re- use birth control. When at some point in my story, I would literally tell them the, the only time that I wanted to use birth control was when things were so difficult and there was no support And I thought I was doing it wrong because I wasn't told things honestly. We are so afraid of being honest because we think that people won't follow Christ. Yes, people ran away at the crucifixion. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. It was gruesome. It was horrible. It was horrific. But they came back. Jesus didn't hide it. He didn't hide the gruesome parts. He showed us that the gruesome parts are but the means to an end. And when we hide the gruesome parts, when we hide the crucifixion and only talk about the resurrection, we're screwing people over and not in the fun way. And people deserve better, people deserve the truth. Listen, if you have two people who are coming into the church who want to get married, they're adults, treat them like adults. Give them adult-level information. And if it freaks them out, make space to talk about it. Make space to answer questions. Make space to deal with the messy stuff. But don't not address it because it's messy and hard. You're shooting people in the foot. You're telling them things like NFP is going to make your marriage better, but you didn't tell them how. You didn't tell them that that resurrection comes as the result of a crucifixion. And then when they experience the crucifixion, they're like, where the heck is my resurrection? And you're just like, oh, this is the sanctifying part. It's not fair and it's not right. And it's not honest. Ultimately, that's the biggest problem with it, is that it's not honest and we serve the God of truth. So without further ado, I will get into my story. I'm done caveating the heck out of this. This is probably like the closest I've ever come to like a super long intro before I got into my actual topic. Like I'm here to to tell my story, but first of all, I'm gonna read you the Riot Act. Enjoy. <laughs> now aren't you so excited to hear what I had to say? Now that I've chewed you out. Oh my goodness. Well, anyway, so let's get started. So my husband and I, like the dutiful Catholics that we are, learned NFP in marriage prep. And this is point number one why I'm like marriage prep is way too late to learn this. This is one of the reasons why I'm like fertility awareness is good for women from puberty to menopause. And like you need to be introducing this to women, to girls as soon as they start their period. No, they don't need to be practicing, like, the Marquette method, but they need to understand, like, cycle tracking. What's normal? What's not normal? Let's start introducing these things at puberty. First of all, because most women go on birth control in puberty because of cycle issues. They're not going on birth control because they want to have sex because, you know, they're promiscuous floozies. They have serious problems, and when they go to the OBGYN, this is the only option they're given, and so fertility awareness is like the first line of defense against that. Like, hey, girls, guess what? There's a way that you can understand your bodies. There is something going on. And there is a, there is a way that you can fix it. Birth control is not going to do that. Let's start there. Okay. I will try to stick to my story through this. It's going to be hard. Okay. So we learned in marriage prep. Now, in marriage prep, I will say this. There's, there seems to be kind of two tracks that you can go in most dioceses in the United States that either don't talk about it at all, or they're like, yeah, it's great, don't do birth control, like some variation of that. Uh, we had that variation with some extras. I will say, like, compared to some other stories that I've heard, our diocese did it decently well. I still have a lot of beefs with it, which I'm about to share. Uh, but we learned, <laughs> we learned, um, a couple to couple weeks. So symptothermal. So first, the first problem was we only knew about one method of fertility awareness. We did not know there were other options. Now, I totally get that the diocese can only offer one uh, method of fertility awareness through the diocese. Like that makes sense to me. Okay. But at the same time, you can be like, also, so here's what we offer through the diocese, but there are all these other methods, and here's ways that, here's information about them, here's places where you can go to look into them, make an informed choice about which method is the right one for you, and then if you don't want to go through the class that we have through the diocese, go through one of these other classes, and then bring us proof from your instructor that you've done so. Like, I think that would be perfectly fine. Um... That would make a lot of sense to me. Anyway, so we go through CCL um, and we had this like older, like super crunchy couple. They were telling us their story that they were on birth control and marriage, but they started because they were super crunchy. They were like, oh, well, we shouldn't be using um, all these artificial hormones. Like there's a cognitive like there's a disconnect in our in the way we live our life. You know, we want to. Um, like save the trees, but then we're pumping ourselves full of these artificial hormones. Like there's a disconnect here. Um, and so that's how they found couple to couple league and they switched. Um, and we did three, three hour courses of the symptothermal method, learning how to chart. Okay. So it on its face, it seems very intensive, very good. Now in the on the marriage, the marriage prep side, we did a marriage prep retreat, like a weekend retreat. And I remember this deacon gets up there and starts talking about how he loves to charge for his wife because he loves her. And they only abstain six days a cycle or like for a week and then like honeymoon effect and it's great. And um, it, there was just no, there was no realistic expectation set The implication of this deacon's story was like, I love to keep the chart because I love my wife. And I realized years later that what I heard was if a husband loves his wife, he will keep the chart. And then if he doesn't keep the chart, he doesn't love his wife. And this caused a lot of problems in our marriage. Stupid problems that didn't need to be there. Um... And the other thing, you know, the whole, like, oh, we only abstain for a week and then honeymoon effect. And let me tell you, after I had honeymoon sex, I was like, ah, never again. <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing. I don't want to have honeymoon sex again. Like, I'm, you know, it was sweet for what it was, but we've learned. And I'm very grateful for that. Um... Yeah, and it's like, even, like, with the honeymoon effect, it doesn't even make sense, because if you have been chased all through your life, which means, like, chastity when you're single means celibacy, so you've never had sex, you don't know what you're missing, and then you have, like, I don't want that effect, I want the effect of, like, like, the real honeymoon effect is, like, you know what you're missing, and then you go through, like, two and a half weeks of abstinence, and then you're like... Okay, now that's a honeymoon effect, okay? Like, you know what you're missing. Okay. So, we get married, we chart, like, I'm charting, and we end up with like two weeks of abstinence. I've only been told to expect a week. So, immediately, I think I'm doing something wrong. Now, layered on top of this, I also got married with the obligation sex message. And I didn't realize this until fairly recently. I truly believed that. It was my job to make sure that my husband had as much sex as possible. And this came from a lot of different areas, both Catholic and secular. Um, this idea that men need sex, that if they don't have sex and they're going to look other places, they think about sex all the time. They are just these insatiable sex fiends and they just need to ejaculate at all days, at all times of the day and night. And if they're not doing that, then, you know, they're going to think about it and it's going to be bad and they're going to look at porn. So like I came into marriage basically with this type of stuff in the back of my mind. So two weeks of abstinence, I am freaking out. I'm freaking out. So we b- broke rules. We broke rules because I was like, I should not be depriving my husband. Now, by the way, this never came from my husband. <laughs> very important note here. Very, very, very important note Years later, when I realized that this was the underlying message that I was dealing with going into marriage, um, I asked him, I was like, D- do you think it's my job to-, to make sure we have as much sex as possible? He was like, no. He's like, that's what you think? I was like, yeah. I was like, man, we should have had this conversation so much sooner, but I wasn't even aware that it was there. So three months into marriage, I'm pregnant with our first, and I was so embarrassed I wasn't like sad that we were having a child, but like we had been telling people that we wanted to wait a year because that's what you do when you get married. You just wait a year like, oh, we need to like practice being married and figure that stuff out and all that. And I I was not opposed to having a child right away. I was ready for a baby. Um, So I was not sad about being pregnant, but I was embarrassed because we were that couple who used NFP and got pregnant. I was like, great. You know, we are just the stereotype. Fan-freaking-tastic. Love that for us. Um, and I was working at an evangelical office where, like, all my coworkers are on birth control. So I'm like, oh, we are just the fantastic poster children. Like, you're typical Catholics who are, like, pro-life. So we just pop out all the babies. Like, you know, all of the stereotypes you can imagine. So I'm super embarrassed. But not super sad. Um, So go through pregnancy, it's like fairly uneventful. I had some nausea, found out in my third pregnancy that the reason why I was like so exhausted and kind of felt a little crazy was I have low blood pressure. Uh, But at 36 weeks, we found out that she was full breech. Now the doctor that I had, um, she knew one way to deliver a full breech baby and that was a C-section. And the only option that she knew to turn a baby was a procedure called version. Um, which is where they turn the baby in utero. Now, I came to find out later that there's all sorts of things that you can do to to turn a baby. Uh, You can do spinning babies, which sounds kind of terrifying, but it's really not. Um, You can actually turn a baby when you're in labor. Didn't know that. Um, So I was given one option, this procedure called version. And my doctor told me she was like, Emily, this procedure is barbaric and it only has a 50% success rate. Well, why the heck would I sign up for that? So I have a C-section. Uh, now, I didn't want a C-section, but I didn't. My doctor told me, and she was she meant this to be supportive and to be comforting, and it was at the time. Uh, but she said, you know, Emily, sometimes babies just know how they need to come into the world, and um, birth is not about you. And it wasn't until, I think, about... Five years later, that I realized that that was the root of what ended up being a traumatic birth experience for me. I didn't know it at the time, but I was erased. What I wanted, how I felt about going into this birth, didn't matter. Birth is not about you, mom. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with getting this baby into the world. Like, wow. Now I'm like looking back on that, and I'm like, jeez, okay, that explains a few things. So at 39 weeks, I have a C-section. Now, obviously, my husband and I are very highly motivated to not have another child because for the time being, because I don't want another C-section. It was miserable. Um, The C-section itself was fine. My doctor even told me afterwards, she said, oh, it was beautiful. And I so basically, there was no space for me to process the fact that like what I had experienced was gutting. And I know that now looking back, like there was something like I felt, I felt so small. I felt so unimportant in the birth of my own child. I was erased. I didn't matter. And then after this surgical procedure, my surgeon comes to me and from a surgeon's perspective tells me this was beautiful, which meant that there was no complications from a surgical perspective. So meant, again, these words were meant in comfort, but what happened was is they erased what I experienced. Oh, it was beautiful. Okay, well then I guess I shouldn't be curious about the fact that I feel hollow inside. Cool. So anyway, so obviously we don't want to have another C-section. Well, my doctor tells me that we need to wait nine months before having another child if we want to attempt a VBAC. Um, now when you have C-sections, you go for your two week checkup and you go for a six week checkup. The two week checkup is to make sure that your incision isn't infected. And then the six week checkup is to assign, is to prescribe you birth control. Let's just be honest about what these appointments are for. Okay. Bogus, just absolute bogus. So my husband has to drive me to the two week appointment. Um, and the subject of birth control came up then. And we told her, no, we're not going to use birth control. Like we're going to use NFP. And she left it be. Well, my six week checkup, I go back by myself. Now, at this point, I am like an emotional basket case because breastfeeding has not gone how I thought it was gonna go. My baby is cluster feeding around the clock, and I didn't know that was normal. I'm about to lose my mind. Like, I'm getting ready to go back to work. So, I'm an emotional basket case because I'm trying to find childcare that feels right. It's like, I'm not sleeping. It's a mess. And I show up to this appointment and my doctor looks me like dead in the face, asking me what kind of birth control I want again. When my husband and I were just at the previous appointment saying, no, we're going to do NFP. And I guess she felt it incumbent on herself to be like, okay, I'm going to like level with you woman to woman. And she says, Emily, I've been married for 20 years and I will just tell you that men have needs. I will never forget that as long as I live. That was a verbatim quote. I don't remember a lot of details. Ask any of my friends. I suck at remembering details. <laughs> but that is one that I remember. And the message is very clear. So this was also still the time where I had the obligation sex message. And then my doctor said this. So again, a second form of erasure. A second form of, a second hit of I don't matter. I am merely an object for my husband's sexual use because he has a need and I must fulfill it and I need to chemically sterilize myself in order for him to fulfill that need without making another baby. Yikes. How many of us women have been told that? I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone. So I went home and my husband and I knew that we did not want to continue practicing symptothermal because I was like, temperature only confirms ovulation but that's no help whatsoever when I'm postpartum. I don't know how to navigate this. And I had a friend of mine who had used Creighton. And so I found a Creighton instructor and I started practicing, like strictly needing to avoid. And Creighton seemed appealing to me because you're only tracking one biomarker. You're only tracking mucus. I'm like, oh, that's going to be so much easier. I didn't realize that like in order to track one biomarker to avoid pregnancy, you have to get a PhD in cervical mucus. And the mental load was beyond overwhelming. I was crazy. So obligation sex message, drowning and like trying to figure out breastfeeding, so much pressure to not have a baby so I do not have another C-section, no awareness at the time that that birth was processed as traumatic. All of this stuff is happening, right? Well, my husband and I break rules again, not even realizing that we're breaking rules. Because as it turns out, my instructor was not meeting with me as often as she should have been with, I had continuous mucus whenever I'm postpartum. That is extremely difficult to track uh, with a mucus only method. And, Uh, My instructor should have been meeting with me every two weeks. She also didn't teach me proper breastfeeding protocols. Apparently, I was supposed to, um, that breastfeeding, because it produces oxytocin, that can produce arousal fluid, and so you actually need to wait a certain amount of time after breastfeeding before checking your mucus, because you could be seeing arousal uh, arousal fluid, and that looks like fertile mucus. These things were never told to me. So every time we would go, like we met every six weeks and every time I'd show up with my chart, like turns out we had sex sex on a potentially fertile day and abstained on an infertile day. So I was going nuts. So I had no confidence whatsoever in what my observations were. And so we ended up having sex (laughs) basically when I ovulated and we conceived my son when I was seven months postpartum which was two months shy of the amount of time that I needed to wait to try for a VBAC. Now my previous doctor had told me that I if that I was not gonna be able to try for a VBAC unless I conceived after nine months postpartum. So I didn't go back to her. I found a different doctor's office um, that was a doctor midwife collaborative. And I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, midwives, they'll probably be more lenient. Uh-huh, no. What ended up happening was, I again, I felt so embarrassed. Well, let me back up a little bit because I don't want to skip over this part. I felt so embarrassed about getting pregnant again. The embarrassment that I felt when I got the first surprise pregnancy was dialed up to like 16 when I got the second. I felt like a failure. I... I When I saw that positive pregnancy test, I literally collapsed in a heap of tears on the bathroom floor. I was hyperventilating, like looking back now, I was probably having an anxiety attack. That's probably what it was. And then of course the guilt, the guilt that I felt for being, for having that reaction to having a baby. Because I'm pro-life. Like this is the reaction that women in crisis pregnancies have, not women who are in healthy, happy marriages. Not Catholic, good Catholic women who were just like, yes, let's have all the babies. Why am I reacting? What's wrong with me? Oh my gosh, I'm a horrible mother. How can I feel this way about my child? And looking back, it was a trauma response. And if I had had the language for it at the time, I would have recognized it as that and I would have been able to find help. Instead, I turned to people who didn't understand that any better than I did. And I was further abandoned and I was further erased and I was further made to believe that I was alone and no one cared. So that was where how I entered into this second doctor's office. I couldn't advocate for myself. I was an idiot. I was stupid. I was alone. Nobody was gonna fight for me and I didn't know how to fight for myself. And so through a lot of different ways, I was cajoled and groomed into a repeat C-section. And that one was even more traumatic than the first. Again, physically, n- not necessarily. It was actually, physically, it was infinitely more rough than the first one. The first one was actually fairly gentle in terms of how, like, they kinda, it kind of feels like, you know, okay, you get a spinal in a C-section, so you can't feel pain, but you can feel pressure. There's definitely a certain point where pressure becomes painful. And there was a lot of that in my second C-section. And just this feeling of get this baby out of me immediately. I want this to be over with yesterday. Again, this feeling of I am erased. I I don't matter. Like I, I literally, I'm laying on the table. My child is being cut out of my stomach. And I literally felt like it didn't matter if I was there for his birth that I was the most inconsequential person in that room. And that's how I entered into motherhood a second time. Well, at this point, I'm like, shoot, this is ridiculous. I am, I am so done. By the way, during that whole second pregnancy, I felt completely abandoned by God as well. I experienced a spiritual dark night. He was nowhere. At one point in my pregnancy, I was, I was just so, I, the feelings that I had the entire time were so overwhelming constantly. And I didn't know what to do with any of them for nine solid months. I I don't know how I survived, honestly. And to feel abandoned by God on top of it all, the cruelty that I felt, it just felt so like, how can this be a good God? And I told him one time, I was like, how can you be good if you can allow this to happen to somebody who was just trying to be faithful? I was doing what the church said I should do, what your church said I should do. I wasn't contracepting. We were open to life, I'm trying to love my husband, I'm trying to love my kids, but this is serious. I can't keep having surgeries, I will die. And then if that happens, who's gonna take care of my kids? Who's gonna take care of my husband? Are you trying to kill me? Are you trying to put it? Y'all, my prayers got nuts. And at one point I was at mass and the picture of divine mercy was up on the altar. And I looked at Jesus, the image of divine mercy. I looked at him dead in the eyes and I said, Jesus, I don't trust you. And I meant it with every fiber of my being. And that was the last thing I said to him for quite some time. I still went to mass, I still went to confession. I felt nothing. At that point in time I did what I called falling back on faithfulness. I went through the motions. I could do the stuff, but it didn't move me in any way shape or form. I didn't feel God. I didn't feel alive. I just my soul felt dead. On the plus side, it was hell. It was a little tiny taste of hell. And I will say this, is that if that is what hell is, which is the total absence of God, which is another way of saying it's a total absence of love, I do not want to go to hell. I don't, People out there who say that like they want to go to hell because they want to be with friends, I don't think they understand Hell is devoid of love. There is no love. There is no camaraderie. There is no community. There, there is only isolation and being alone. There is no love. So after all of this, it was just, okay, we have got to take a break. We cannot have another child. Like, the situation is dire. Spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, absolutely not. I will lose it. And I need to be present to my actual living husband and my actual living children. I need to put the pieces of my life and myself back together. And so we switched to the Marquette method. Um, some friends of mine had switched to that. So basically, every all the methods that I learned was basically just word of mouth. Uh, so we switched to the Marquette method. And, um, you know, we were definitely in a position where it was just like, this is way cheaper than having another baby. This is way cheaper than I I will throw money at this rather than ever go through what I went through again. So we started Marquette and we successfully avoided a pregnancy for two years. And, um, in addition to letting myself heal physically. See, that was at the time, that was the only thing I was thinking about was the physical healing. I didn't realize... I had no idea anything about trauma or that you could experience it even if you didn't have a near-death experience. I, I knew nothing. And so all I was thinking, of was like, oh, I need to heal physically. And then also... Um, it really wasn't even healed physically. It was, I need to get to a point where when I go to a doctor's office and I ask for a VBAC, they cannot tell me no because I haven't waited long enough. I was like, no, I need something to like shove in their face. But we were also living in a very tiny apartment and just like practically logistically, we needed a house. We needed a house with a yard. We needed space. So in March of 2020, yes, that March of 2020, that happened. Um, y'all St. Joseph like came through, um, now leading up to this for those two years, I really worked on trying to rebuild my relationship with God. I knew the fact that like that prayer of that very fervent prayer of Jesus, I don't trust you. I knew I was going to need to walk that one back. (laughs) I knew that like that was going to need some, some work. And so I did. I really like intentionally, like both of my kids were miraculously very good sleepers. They took excellent naps at the same time. And so I had time that I could actually sit in like contemplation, like at home and talk to Jesus. And there was one conversation that we had where I was just, I was so frustrated with myself. I was like, Jesus, like, what is it going to take to trust you again? What is it going to take? Like, it's not that you haven't proven yourself trustworthy, like at this point, after my my second child was born, I had started Total Wine. I had made all these connections. I was like, I want to be the person I wish I had. I want to go back to all of those people in marriage prep and tell them what horrible things they said that they have no idea they said. And then I was like, well, that will not go very well. Also, I don't want to find those people again. I will just start talking. So much good came out of all of that hell. I found my purpose. Really? I found my purpose. And it was very edifying and it was very healing to a certain degree. And I was like, Jesus, why can't I trust you again? Because I can see the good that you have brought out of this which I have read so many times in scripture and, and have been told in, in so many different saint stories that this is what you do. This is your thing, man. Like you take mess and you make beauty and that's what you're doing. Why can't I trust you? Y'all know what he said to me? Y'all. He comes back to me very quickly, very clearly. He says, and I quote, just start trusting me. And y'all, I, I think my eyes could have gotten stuck in the back of my head. And I looked at him. I was at the crucifix up on my wall. I looked at him and I was just like, this is how I know you're a man. Because only a man would oversimplify this like that. Only a man would oversimplify this. Just start trusting me. And what I realized was like, ah what he was saying was, and I knew I felt it in my soul, what he meant was that trusting him is my choice. It's not something that he needs to prove because he's already proven it. It's not, something, it's not about what he needs to do. It's about whether or not I am willing to make that choice. It's up to me. And I looked back at him and I said, "Okay, but you know what? We're going to start real juvenile. okay? we're going to start real juvenile. I'm going to need like some reciprocity here. And it actually happened a few a few weeks or maybe like a week later um, at our apartment complex. Parking was abysmal. And we come home one night from a friend's house and it's dark and it's raining and we have both of our kids. And it's like after the time where I know that we're going to have to park like a mile away. And I just said, all right, Jesus, here's your shot here's your shot. I'm going to trust you. You're going to find us a parking spot close to our apartment. And y'all, I kid you not, as soon as we pull into the parking lot, there is a parking spot literally right in front of the door of our building. And I was like, okay, okay. i see you. Well done. Well done. You met me where I am in this juvenile state. Thank you very much. So there was like all of these, these moments. That's just one story that I, I like to recall, but there was a lot of rebuilding happening. And so in, in March of 2020, um, actually in January, 2020, we started looking for a house. Um, and we wanted to give ourselves plenty of time cause we live in an area where housing is very expensive. We have a very tight budget. We don't want to be shoehorned into something. We wanted to give ourselves flexibility. So, um, we started praying to St. Joseph and we found this house that was perfect. And like walking up to the house for the open house in February of 2020, that's important to note. Um, (laughs) before everything hit the fan, uh, I walked up and I looked at my husband and I was just like, I'm going to fall in love with this house and we're not going to get this house. I know we're not going to get this house, but we walked through and I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is our house. This is our house. And we prayed to St. Joseph and I had given, I had given St. Joseph my specs for the house that we were going to have. And I was like, listen, if we're going to have more children, we need more space. If we're going to have family come in town and stay with us, we need more space. And I gave him like, here's my specs. And y'all St. Joseph took my list. And he was just like, mm, honey, that's you, you low balling it. I'm going to up the ante for you. It's the perfect house. It was the absolute perfect house. We closed. We saw the house on Sunday. We closed Monday night. We moved in three weeks later on a Saturday. The following Monday in March of 2020, everything shut down for COVID. Not even joking. It was amazing. So God is just like showing me like, hey, I see you. I love you. And that was actually something, that was how I was trying to rebuild our relationship. I was like, God, I I don't trust you in the area of my fertility yet, but I can trust you with these other things. I can trust you with these we need a house. You want us to have more babies? We need a house. (laughs) This is very practical. Help us out. And he did. Man, did he come through. So we moved in, literally two days after we move in, everything shuts down from COVID and we are just like in this, Gorgeous home in a beautiful area and just like, woof, okay? Like so many things aligned to make it happen. And around June, I look over at my husband. We're sitting on our back patio. We are watching our children play in our beautiful backyard. And we're just enjoying life. And I looked at him and I said, you know, honey, I don't think we really have a good reason not to have another child. And he was like, oh, yeah, but it's going to be really hard for me to, like, actually try to have a kid. And I'm like, I hear you. Like, you want to break some rules? He's like, yeah, let's break some rules. (laughs) So before we even broke a rule, I am going online. I am finding the nearest OBGYN office. I am doing my due diligence. I go out and I buy pregnancy tests, y'all. I'm not even joking. I was like, listen, we've had two surprises. This is just gonna be like the first time we break a rule. Like it's gonna just, all right, that's it. So you broke a rule. And 14, you know, two weeks after ovulation, come around, I take a pregnancy test and I look at it and it's negative. I was like, well, that's very strange. It's very odd. That's not the outcome I was expecting. Well, you know, let's give it a couple of days. Well, the next day I got my period. So I was like, well, okay, then definitely not pregnant. We broke rules for a year and a half and nothing happened. The first time I saw that negative pregnancy test, I laughed. I was like, of course, we try really hard twice, like not to have, like we have serious reasons not to have babies twice. We get babies. We are ready to have a baby finally. We don't get a baby. And I told a friend of mine, I was like, it's like God looks down at everything that I want and just says no. And I was trying to make it all funny, but six months of negative pregnancy tests, it stopped being funny. And it started to be really frustrating. And I would pray these prayers like, God, whatever it is that you smoke up in heaven, I really do hope we don't have that brand on earth because we got enough problems. I had to find the humor somewhere. Well, at about the six-month mark, or about the year mark, I mentioned something in my stories that, you know, my husband and I have been trying and, like, we haven't succeeded yet. And I wanted to make very light of it. Because at this point, like, I know women who... Have been infertile for years, primary, secondary infertility. What the heck is a year in like trying to conceive a child when I know women who've been at it for like five, six, 10 years? And to know that like the emotional cost of that is the same as like suffering from terminal cancer. Like, what is this? Like, I am not talking about this. But I mentioned it in passing and somebody. Landed in my DMs asking me if I'd ever heard about an ismosile. And when I saw it typed out, I pronounced it in my head. I was like, what the heck is an ismosile? It's kind of like reverse Greek pronunciation. You know, like whenever you see those playwrights like Euripides and Socrates. And it's like, if you see it written out the first time, you're like, who the heck is Euripides? So it's kind of like a reverse Greek playwright. Anyway, so ismosile. And I looked it up. It's a defect in the C section scar that can cause all sorts of complications, including miscarriage and infertility. And all I felt when I saw that was rage. The rage that came up inside of me and almost came out at this person who asked me if this was something I had ever looked into. I realized that was not a normal response and I realized it was time for me to get some help that I needed. I needed help. I needed to unpack everything that I had been through emotionally and mentally. And I had known it for years, but I was so scared of going to therapy. I was so scared of sitting in front of a stranger and telling my story and thinking to myself, like, she is going to judge me up one side and down the other. She's going to think I'm just crazy and stupid. She's going to ask me, why don't you get on birth control? That's how it's going to go. Why do I want to go pay to be judged? I don't want to go in that space. No. But at this point, I was like, no, I, I need to get some help. I need to get some help. Something's not right. And I reached out to a a therapist that I had done some collaborations with on Instagram. And I asked her for recommendations for therapists in my area because she didn't practice in my area. So I was like, who do you know? And I contacted one of them and she ended up being my therapist. And she has been my therapist for the past almost two and a half years. And we have done so much work, so much good work. And it sucked. That has sucked too. Uh, you know, when I, when my husband and I, in June of 2020, when I looked at him and I said, "Let's break some rules," I prayed. My prayer was, "God, I want my next pregnancy to be a healing pregnancy." But at the time, what I what I thought healing meant was, I want all of the pain of my past to be erased. I want it to go away. I want this experience to be so good and so beautiful that I just forget everything that I went through. And that's not healing, that's gaslighting. I was praying to to be gaslit, I was praying to, to gaslight myself. And God knew, he was like, no, no, sweetheart, that's not how it works. Healing hurts, but it's an edifying pain. And this time you're not going to be alone. You're not going to, you will matter. People will care. There were times in therapy, there were things that I shared with my therapist that I had kept inside for four or five years. That even after I told my therapist, I think I've only told two other people. Things that happened, things that had thoughts that I had, dreams that I had around my pregnancies, the guilt that I carried, that I still carried, that was affecting my motherhood, and I didn't even realize it. It was affecting my marriage. And the healing I've experienced over the past two and a half years has been amazing. It's hurt. Uh, put in headphones if you got kids listening. It has hurt like a son of a bitch. I don't really know how else to describe it. But it has been very, very edifying and healing. It's been so good. This is what I think people are talking about. You know, I think that to, to bring it kind of back to the beginning, when people talk about like NFP being the best thing for your marriage, this is what they mean. And this is the problem. When you sell NFP as being the best thing for your marriage, you're papering over how it happens. And it's the how that matters. It's not where you end up. It's how you get there. How did you get there? Talk to me about that. Talk to me about the crap that you've been through. How did you navigate it? Don't tell me that you've been married for 35 years and you're happy now. Talk to me about the times when it was crap, when you were sitting in the shit, and you felt like there was no way out. How did you find a way out? What did that look like? How did it feel? What was it like to feel alone, to feel like no one cared, to feel like you didn't matter? How did you find the strength to heal? how did you find the strength to do the work? Because see, that's, that's where NFP makes a marriage good. It's not by fast forwarding to the resurrection. It's not by fast forwarding to some weird, creepy state of euphoria. It's not like feeling like you're dying inside but putting a smile on on the outside. It is so creepy. And worse than that, it's a lie. What does it mean to suffer joyfully? Well, it means first and foremost, I'm honest. Everything that I just shared with you hurt in ways I can't describe. And weirdly, I would wish that pain on my best friend if It meant that it would lead her down the same path, that it would lead her closer to God. It would lead her to a deeper understanding of her faith. It would lead her to deeper unity with her spouse and with her God. I would very much wish the same type of pain on my best friend if that was the outcome. I know that's weird to say. (laughs) Most people are like, oh, it hurts so bad. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It's like, actually, I I would wish this on my best friend. But here's the thing. If my best friend went through it, I would make sure she knew she was not alone. And this is where I like to take people back to Calvary. And let's look, let's actually look at that and everything that happened. And let's look at, at the people who were there around Jesus. See, Jesus had to carry his cross, right? Like that was the whole thing. He couldn't throw it off. Like only he could carry it. But there were people who helped. And how did they help? Well, Simon of Cyrene helped him carry his cross, right? There was some assistance there. Veronica came up and wiped his face and to me that image is just so astounding because I could imagine like being a member of the crowd and seeing this woman going out there and wiping the blood off of his face and just thinking that as the most futile act you could possibly imagine because I'm sure the blood immediately returned to his face but what a reminder to him that he was not alone that he was seen that somebody could see his pain, to remind him of his humanity, to remind him that even though he is literally walking to his death, death, it matters that I am here to wipe the blood off of your face. And then further down the line, you have the weeping women, the women who were just beside themselves to see him go through this. And then at the foot of the cross, who's there and what are they doing? You know, what's interesting is, is that most of the people who are talking at the foot of the cross are the villains of the peace. The heroes are the quiet ones. They either say nothing or they say very little. Those are the people that we need when we're carrying our crosses. Nobody can take it away from us. Nobody can take it away from us. We have to carry it. That's part of it. But we need we need those characters. We need our Simons. We need our Veronicas. We need all of those Marys standing at the foot of our cross. And John standing. You know the mother the mother of God. They were the Gospels record that Mary at the foot of the cross was standing. Could you imagine? Could you imagine your son dying on the cross and actually having the strength to stand? I'd have fainted. And that was her calvary. Now to get back to my story, because I'm leaving off a very important piece. <laughs> so basically, my husband and I experienced a year and a half of infertility. So we are we are about to. Go, I'm I'm on the list to go see a napro surgeon to have a procedure done to see if I have an isthmus seal. And I'm on her wait list to, to be seen. And for no reason at all, I get pregnant. And of course, I'm terrified. Because I'm like, what if there's an isthmus seal? Well, now I have an increased rate of, of miscarriage. Oh my gosh, if i have been like super irresponsible. Um, you know, weirdly, my husband and I just did not feel called to try to avoid. Because we hadn't had a kid for a year and a half. There was just, there was no, there was no peace at the time to avoid a pregnancy, which sounds strange. And here's the thing that I tell people all the time. Like when God calls you to something, it's not that it's not going to seem crazy. It will probably seem crazy, but there will be peace. And there was peace about our decision to not actually like try to avoid. We weren't technically trying to conceive, but we were not abstaining during the fertile window. There we go. So I got pregnant. I actually received anointing of the sick because the isthmus seal had not been ruled out and could not be ruled out during the pregnancy. Um, And so a good priest friend, I reached out to him and explained to him a little bit about the situation. I was like, would anointing of the sick be appropriate? In my case, he was like, absolutely, let's go. I was like, sweet deal, let's do it. And man, did I experience a healing pregnancy. My prayer was answered. But this pregnancy happened almost a year after I started therapy. And in that time, I had discovered that my previous births were traumatic. I understood why I was, I, it was, I experienced just deep dread taking my children to the doctor's offices. Why I just felt so much guilt about any, anything that was wrong with my child, it was my fault. And so I hated going to the doctor's office and like not having them meet their developmental milestones in different areas for different reasons. And and it was terrifying because I was like, they're going to look at me and they're going to be like, what are you doing wrong, mom? What's wrong with you? You're a horrible mother. That was literally how it felt every time I went to take my children to just like their normal annual well checks. I hated it. And I knew and I realized it was like, oh, (laughs) birth trauma. Okay, got it. Check. So let's start working on healing that. Well, because I had gone through that healing process, because I realized these were processes traumatic, now I'm pregnant. Now I know what I need to say in the doctor's office. Now I know how to advocate for myself. Now I know that if certain things are being said, I don't have to take that, but also I can take what happens in these doctor's appointments back into therapy and I can process it. Like what was happening in my body and in my mind when my doctor was basically saying the same thing to me that my doctors were saying to me during my second pregnancy. And it was because I was not alone, because I had that help, I had the tools to advocate for myself. And uh, right around my 29-week mark, I could start to kind of hear the doctors that I was seeing change their tune. Up until this point, they were like, oh, yeah, we can pursue a VBAC. We'll we'll see how it goes. That's what they kept saying. Because I was trying to pursue a VBAC. I don't want another C-section. The first two were traumatic. No, thank you. But also I was trying to detach from wanting a particular outcome because ultimately birth is something beyond my control. It's about surrender. Doesn't matter how it happens, it's about surrender. But I could hear these doctors, they were starting to kind of feed me some of the same lines and about the 29-week mark, my, hus- my husband was like, Emily, have you looked into trying, like, trying to find a doula? My husband suggested that to me. One of his co-workers' uh, wives was having a baby and she hired a doula. And they had a good experience. He was like, Emily, look into it. And just do it. If that will help you, do it. And I did. I interviewed two doulas. I picked one. And they both told me about an actual VBAC-friendly office in the area. And I switched to that practice just in the nick of time. Literally just in the nick of time. They did not accept new patients past 32 weeks. I called their office at 30 weeks. And two weeks after I called was their earliest available appointment. And so I switched to this new practice. They were amazing. They listened to me. It was collaborative. They supported me in trying to pursue a VBAC, like actually supported me. I had doctors look me dead in the face and say, you are an excellent candidate for a VBAC. We are rooting for you. We want this to happen. It was amazing. And my doulas were so supportive. It was a group of two women who... Um, they had a practice together. But I had gestational diabetes and I also had COVID during my pregnancy. And I was doing non-stress tests, uh, where they listen to the baby's heartbeat. And I was at 40 weeks and six days, I go in for a non-stress test and a sonogram. And what they want, they don't want to see the heartbeat dip on a sonogram. And they want to see pra- or they don't want to see the heartbeat dip on the NST, the non-stress test. And they want to see practice breathing on the sonogram. Well, at 40 weeks and six days, they saw the heartbeat dip. And they did not see practice breathing. And I was not in labor. Though I was trying my darndest to go into labor, trust me. And my doctor came in and she said, listen, I am so sorry. She was like, this baby has to come out today. I can't let you go home. I'm seeing these things that could indicate something very bad. Or just, you know, something's not right. She didn't say very bad. Something's not right. This baby needs to come out today. You're going to have to have a C-section. And I'm really sorry. How how are you feeling? What a difference, y'all. The difference between my first doctor and this doctor was so huge. In both cases, my doctors told me that this had to happen for the good of my child. But the first doctor said, and mom, it's not about you, so suck it up and deal. And this doctor said, you matter, and how you feel about this matters. How do you feel? I know this is not what you wanted. We wanted a VBAC for you, but it's just not safe. And I felt so much peace. I was shocked. I, I was, there was definitely some relief because... My first two C-sections, I had my kids at 39 weeks. So this is the longest I've ever been pregnant. And I was very much done with it. It was a full summer pregnancy. I was like, well, at least I am not going home with a baby in my stomach. I'm cool with this. Yeah, let's go. (laughs) But then after my doctor left, the panic did start to set in. Because I knew like, oh my gosh, okay, I'm going to be going back into that place. I'm going to be going literally back into the same exact place where this trauma has happened before. It's going to be like reliving on steroids. But I had the tools and I had the language. I talked to my husband. I talked to my doula. I knew what to do. I knew what to do to keep myself grounded. And three weeks before this happened, I was in adoration. And I was praying. I was like, Jesus, just please, whatever happens, don't hurt me again. With the outcome of this baby, don't hurt me again. And he spoke to me again and he said, What was the worst part of last time? That you were alone, you didn't matter, and no one cared. And he said, No matter what happens, this time you are not alone. And I couldn't help myself. I was like, Oh Jesus the the no matter what happens, come on, man like give me some surety here. But y'all he was so right. This C-section was so healing. Everyone showed up for me. Everyone made me feel like I actually mattered. the, anest- the anesthesiologist y'all my doulas were telling me the anesthesiologists go into that so that they don't have to deal with patients and my anesthesiologist wanted to be there for me. She wanted to help me. She was the one who noticed that when they were administering the spinal, that I was just collapsing in a heap of tears, panicking. And she reached over and she says, what's going on, what's wrong? And everybody was there in those moments where I felt so alone before. And these were the moments that stuck out, that people were there. And I knew, I knew what God was doing. See, he and I were still a little wonky. We were still a little wonky. But What he was doing was, is he was giving me these people. See, he was loving me through these people. He was being present with me through these people. He actually, before this birth, he took me back to this moment uh, when I was having my second child, which was the worst of them all. Not the worst child, the worst C-section, the worst pregnancy. And I asked Jesus, I was like, where were you? Where were you there? I know you were there, rationally. But I couldn't feel you, I couldn't see you. Where were you? And he told me, he said, I was in your husband's eyes. And I remembered the way that my husband was looking at me during that surgery with so much tenderness and fear and care and concern and love. And I can still remember those eyes. And Jesus saying that that's where he was. That he was there loving me through my husband. That he was showing me also how much he values the unity of marriage. How much he wants my husband and I to be united. That even though we did go through some stuff, as I have shared, that's what he wants. He wants my husband and I to be united, to be one. It's his greatest desire for our marriage. And when my son was born, my baby was born, I got to see him. So in my two previous C-sections, I was, com- like, the curtain was up. I didn't think I wanted to see Um, and so I had them keep the curtain up, but this time I had them lower it. I wanted to be involved some kind of way. So I got to see my son be born. And as soon as he was born and they cleaned him up a little bit, he was on my chest. Now in my previous C-sections, I was not allowed to have skin to skin contact until I was being wheeled into the recovery room. So my husband got it first. This is my first time being able to hold my baby. And before, you know, people would tell me that, you know, All the pain of childbirth that you experience, as soon as you hold your baby, it all melts away. I never had that moment. I never understood what what people meant. Because when I held my baby, I held pain. There was a loss. There was not a gain. But this time, it was very different. This time, I held my baby and... In my past surgeries, this was when I felt the most alone because my husband was over with my baby. The nurses were cleaning him up and the doctors were sewing me up. And nobody was there for me. Nobody was there with me. And that was a time in my previous C-sections where I felt most alone and most like I was just the most inconsequential person in the room. And this time my baby was on my chest. And y'all, he opened his eyes. He had his head on my breast and he was looking, he actually started rooting in the OR, the little champ, like he was crazy. And my husband was behind me and he was cradling my head and cradling my baby's head. And it was just this beautiful moment where the three of us were together. And what was happening below the curtain, on the other side of the curtain, when I was being stitched up, legit melted away. Before when I was being stitched closed, I was so aware of what was happening. Like I could feel myself being tugged and pulled and, and this time that was gone. I was just there in this beautiful moment. So my NFP story is like, yeah, it's an NFP story, but like, really, like, which method worked for me? I know everybody's like, which method worked for you so I never have to experience what you did? That's not what they say, but I know that's what they mean. That's in the subtext. The lesson learned from my story is not, you know, symptothermal bad, Creighton bad, Marquette good. No. It's about the lessons that I learned through my story and through talking to other women it's about finding the best method for you. There's so many options. Which one's going to be right for you? And the one that's going to be right for you is going to be right for a lot of different reasons. You have a very different story from mine, and so that's why I created, uh, co-founded um, with my partner Mary Bruno, fan base. That's why we started our organization. Because she's from the other end of the spectrum for me. She is, has primary infertility. She's permanently infertile. She had severe endometriosis. Creighton saved her life. She's a Creighton practitioner. She thought Creighton, when we, when we first met up, she thought that Creighton was the best method of NFP and all the other ones sucked. And I was like, Creighton is basically the devil incarnate. <laughs> Opposite ends of the spectrum. But we started to listen to each other's stories and we realized like, no, Creighton is a good method. And so is symptothermal, and so is Marquette, and so is Billings, and so is Boston Crosscheck, and so is Fem, and so is like all of the million other symptothermal methods that you could possibly choose from, like SymptoPro Pro and SensaPlan and NFPTA. It's about figuring out. It's about having that space to figure out, like what's going to be the best method for you, and then coming into it with some realistic expectations. And then when those expectations, when those expectations don't even pan out, okay, who do I turn to for help? Is there somebody I can talk to? Is there somebody who gets it? Is there somebody who won't judge me? This is hard enough as it is. I'm judging myself out the wazoo. I don't need any more of that. So there's my story in a nutshell and there's all this stuff that I learned. And I'm gonna have to wrap this up here um, this has actually gone on a lot longer than I thought. I would like to do a nicer conclusion, but it is dinner time and my husband is solo with three kids. So I'm going to leave it there. Uh, my NFP story, of course, continues. We are back using Marquette. We are back dealing with two and a half weeks of abstinence right now and it sucks and I hate it, but you know... Seven years of marriage, three babies, three C-sections, and everything that I just described to you. It's really like, it it really tempers the sex drive, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Once you start to learn the consequences, it's like, I'm good. I'm good. Yes, you are looking very great. An orgasm would be marvelous right now. But a baby? Ah, we can wait a little longer for that one. All right, and on that bombshell, I will leave you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope it brightened your day and that you laughed as much as you learned. If you're enjoying the show and want more people to learn about what I share here, please leave a review and even share with a friend. I hope to join me again soon. Until then.